This is Steve Stein. Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. We're in the throes of the coronavirus crisis, and there's not a news agency, news feed, or podcast producer that hasn't mentioned that fact. In that regard, I guess we're no different. Asia has been on the front lines of this pandemic, and to a large degree, what we learn here could help keep other parts of the world out of harm's way. In recent weeks, we've featured guests like Ben Rolfe, head of the Communicable Disease Threats Initiative, Dr. Bruce Lipton, the author of the groundbreaking book, The Biology of Belief, Dane Chamorro, a leading expert in organizational risk, and Edward Booty, an entrepreneur who brings healthcare resources to Asia's rural poor. How long the crisis will continue is anyone's guess, but make no mistake, the world will be forever changed because of it. Without becoming COVID-19 centric, we hope in coming episodes to touch on the virus's impact. How will a post-COVID world rebalance global power? What's the anticipated impact on consumer behavior? Will corporations find in this moment an opportunity to change its practices and adapt to a new set of rules? First up, Frank Lavin. He's a former Citibank executive, U.S. ambassador to Singapore, and the founder and chairman of Export Now, a business designed to deliver U.S. brand products to China. Frank, like so many of our other guests, comes to the program with perspective. He's operated in the region for decades and carries with him a keen sense of history. Frank and I spoke at the outset of the pandemic. Since then, things have grown worse. Markets are volatile, trade is disrupted, and cities the world over are in varying stages of lockdown. Our conversation is an attempt to pull back momentarily in order to reflect on some of the broader trends that inform Asia's prospects in the medium and long term. This is where Frank is at his best. He's a geopolitical junkie. We cover a lot of territory in this fast-moving conversation, moving from Chinese consumerism, e-commerce, authoritarianism, and trade. Frank, how are you? Good to talk with you, Steve. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Good. And, uh, you know, you, you were one of my first guests when I started the podcast uh, two and a half some odd years ago. And it's just we're overdue. So I'm just thrilled to be back with you. Well, I'm delighted I got invited back. Thank you for having me on. How has it gone the last two and a half years? We, uh, we've had a very good two years of growth. In fact, we're now in our 10th year, but the last two or three years have been very strong. What we do is we take American brands and we launch them in China through e-commerce. So we basically run stores on Tmall, the Alibaba platform, JD, and other platforms in China. So it allows brands to enter China without ever setting up a corporate structure in China or hiring anybody in China or even going to China. We're just a total outsourced solution. And because of e-commerce, this allows really segmented brands that might not get good bricks and mortar distribution. They'll still have a nice audience in China because the population base is so large and the sort of consumer orientation is large too. Last year, China became a larger retail market than the United States. It passed the United States in total retail sales, even though China's GDP is only about 60% the size of the U.S. So how does uh, the whole U.S.-China trade issue affect your business? Well, uh, two sides of that coin. What happened in China, what happened in the U.S. On the China side, there was no bad news at all. We had our best year ever. And not just us, but Procter & Gamble had the best year ever. Uh, Nike had the best year ever. Anheuser-Busch, InBev had their best year ever. Meaning the Chinese consumers had a very strong year of spending in 2019. So on the China side, there was never any anti-American boycott or any signal from the government to, you know, fight back. And that was, I think, very smart of uh, China leadership not to make this a public issue or populist issue. But on the U.S. side, unfortunately, it did have a dampening effect, not formally. Nobody 
told or signaled U.S. businesses don't go to China, but you could sense, it was palpable, you could see in the U.S. business community a dampening of enthusiasm about China. They could see the fist fight, they could watch CNN, they could look at President Trump's rhetoric, and they said, look, I, I, it's, I'm not clear on what's going on here, how this is going to be resolved, and I'll just defer China activity until it's settled. So we really did have a slowdown. I'll tell you this, of our growth last year in China, we were up over 50%, which was great. But of that 50%, some 90% of that was legacy clients. Only 10% were new clients. So, so it's those who might have gone into the market held back in anticipation of some resolution to the, the tensions? Yeah, typically the, we're, we're talking to really nice U.S. consumer brands, cosmetics, apparel, personal care, other kind of just nice items that you and I might enjoy in our personal lives. So these are companies that are very brand focused, very product focused, meaning they're not necessarily internationally focused. And you could even be a $300 million or $500 million U.S. company. You don't really have much of an international orientation. So that, that typical mid-size U.S. company does not have an international planning department, doesn't have a strategic department. Uh, it's just a bunch of leadership people saying, well, okay, how do we go into new markets? So, so when they see the president's speech and say, we've had it with China and we're going to have more friction in that relationship and impose tariffs and China responds with its tariffs, they just say, we're going to pull back. You said something quite interesting earlier, which it, it, for, for many U.S. brands, it actually has been some of the best years ever, uh, which runs contrary to the narrative that was playing out in Washington, D.C., which is American companies can't penetrate the Chinese market. It's time to level the playing field. Yeah. How do you explain that? Well, I, I think it's segment uh, specific, because if you're in the government regulated segment in China, I think that statement has a lot of truth to it. Meaning, if you're in uh, if you're in finance or telecommunications, you're you're going to have a tough time competing against Chinese firms because you're government regulated and the playing field can get tilted. But if you're in consumer goods, if you're selling apparel or cosmetics, or if you're in F and B, if you look at what Starbucks or Marriott's doing in China, uh, it's a fabulous year, and the Chinese government doesn't have strong feelings about kids buying Nike shoes any more than the U.S. government has feelings. So so around December, uh, the U.S. government um, uh, arrived at what would appear to be an interim agreement uh, with China, just easing the tensions. Uh, and then lo and behold, we had Chi uh, Chinese New Year and then uh, the notorious coronavirus. At this point, we really don't know whether or not those policy changes or, or, or liberalizations are going to positively impact U.S. trade. What's your thinking? Yeah, it is hard to disaggregate that because uh, you don't have a base case. What we have is we felt very good at the end of last year as that phase one agreement was reached. We said, I'm not sure how much good news is in this agreement, but at least it's a good signal to market. And at least it's the end of bad news. It says we're not going to have more tariffs or more friction. So at least we have a stable operating environment. And that's what businesses need. So we felt very good about that. And you're right, very shortly after that coronavirus hit. And I think we're seeing a deferral of activity. We've got, we do have uh, some really nice new clients this year, but I have a sense we'd be doing better still if we just didn't have that coronavirus. People are just, it's, a, it's an uncertain environment. You know, it reminds me a little bit like uh, Brexit, where people know Brexit's coming, but they don't know the ultimate cost or complexity, and they're just holding, but they're saying, let's not introduce new products or new techniques or new activity in Britain until we really know the cost and we know exactly what we're doing. So it's going to slow down new business activity. Were there organizations or sectors that were uh, kind of celebrating uh, as to these, these opportunities to penetrate the China market, and all of a sudden, because of the coronavirus, are now getting slammed? For instance, hospitality or travel or others, or is it primarily 
primarily technology financial services and therefore we just don't know? Well, the technology and financial service uh, segments, I think we're unhappy because uh, unfair competition. Those are government regulated entities and they, I think with a lot of validity, didn't think they could properly compete in China. Frank, I want to pull back a little bit and just, you know, you've been in the region a long time. You have perspective. Um, you know, you've been here as, as a, an ambassador, former ambassador to, to Singapore. Uh, you've worked with Citibank. Uh, you've, you now are a startup guy, have your own firm and dealing with, uh, you know, expert in co commerce and, and e-commerce. You've got some really interesting perspectives. What are your views in terms of the next three to five years in terms of Asia's commercial viability and vitality? What, if anything is going to get in its way, and what are some of your general views about the rise of Asia vis-a-vis -vis other parts of the world? Yeah, I'm uh, bullish on Asia. I think Asia's been on quite a journey these past few decades, uh, and in my view, the journey continues, and I think what gives me a basis of optimism is, first, there's been a real palpable move toward market economics, uh, with you know some minor exceptions like North Korea. Every society in Asia realizes that if you have open economies and let people invest and participate in those economies as they see fit, you're going to get better outcomes. And even countries that have been very state-directed, like India, really have made that evolution to market economics. So you've got, I think, a good basis for economic growth. The second building block of good news in Asia is a reasonably strong consensus on uh, trade. That open border and competition and comparative advantage also allow societies to allocate resources most effectively and get the best outcome for their citizens. And that is not a universal consensus, but it's generally held and it's it's proven that if we look at the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement or we look at agreements, various agreements with China or Japan, the TPP, uh, it's really proven its efficacy. So there's a fair amount of good news in economic management. Are there, are there prospects for challenge? Yeah, there are two or three possible areas where we might see bad news. Nothing I would say yet, but, uh, but uh, occasional flashes maybe of bad news that might suggest. One uh, big geopolitical question for the region over the next 10 or 20 years is how is China going to define its international role? And can China have the statecraft and the wisdom to define it in a way that is collegial? We understand they're, they want, they're there to to advocate China's national interest, we understand that, but you ought to be able to come up with some approach that also allows your neighbors to feel comfortable about you and to welcome your participation. But that's a huge challenge because the sheer weight of China, the gravitational pull is so large. So that's one set of challenges. The second set of challenges is there's not much in the way of rogue states in the region, but, uh, but there is North Korea, and North Korea does have nuclear capabilities, and will they continue to respect uh, international norms with regard to the nuclear power where they violate that that's a bit of an open question so there could be trouble from the fringe so to speak and that's the third is uh, political violence or identity violence whether it's uh, uh, Sinhalese extremist or Islamic extremist or we've just seen this past week these very ugly uh, footage from uh, Delhi of uh, Hindu gangs uh, attacking Muslims so there's unfortunately a very sad prospect that's sort of always present of identity politics turning violent and turning extremist and people succumbing to hate. So we really look to local political leadership and civic leadership to remind uh, people that a successful society is one in which based on tolerance and mutual respect and allows everybody to play a role. 
Let's take these one at a time. Let's go back to uh, China, uh, China's influence in the world and maybe soft power. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, came off with lots of fanfare, lots of promotion, uh, created a, a reaction uh, from the U.S. government, um, and, and a lot of concerns that maybe this was you know, China's play, big play, its hegemonic move. Um, yet, um, they're struggling. They have the coronavirus they're dealing with right now. They've got their own financial structural issues. They have uh, problems in convincing governments to work effectively or uh, with them. How is that going? And um, is there any rethink, you know, I mean, without, you know, we don't, we're not in the heads of the Politburo, but do you think that there's any reassessment of whether or not that uh, Belt and Road Initiative actually played out the way they envisioned? Yeah, um, I, I basically agree with what you just outlined, Steve. Um, look, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't evaluate China by sort of taking a daily read or weekly read on sort of a stock market take. I'd sort of say, the trend over this decade, next decade, is going to be uh, China's international role is going to be propelled by economic growth, and it will seek uh, greater political reach and will also continue its military build-out. And that's just a fact of life. And by the way, that's not intrinsically objectionable. It depends on how China implements this newfound role in Asia. Uh, Belt and Road, I thought, had some very positive attributes to it, but it also was, as you suggested, also was a sort of wake-up call for Washington to say, don't take relationships for granted, and there's a bit of geopolitical competition going on in the region, you better get in the game. So, uh, so that's not a bad result if it spurs Washington to be active in the region as well. I, I think you would say for the moment, uh, coronavirus has got to be job number one of Beijing leadership, and international connectivity is of reduced importance. But does that last three months, six months, 12 months uh, is an open question. But no question for this year, they really have to get their hands around coronavirus, and there is a potential challenge to the overall macroeconomic success of China this year if they, if they don't get on top of that very quickly. Is the rest of Asia, primarily Southeast Asia or India, taking this time to reevaluate their own endeavors, their own integration opportunities, while China deals with this coronavirus and its own domestic problems? Well, the trouble is there's such an asymmetry in size of these markets. So it's not as if there's alternative partners to dance with or work with. Every one of these countries in Southeast Asia has established its primary trading relationship with China, and that's just the size of China's economy. So China is the number one trading partner for, I believe, every single East Asian economy. So you don't have a ready alternative in that sense. Now, the EU is doing more in the region, India is doing more in the region, Australia is doing more in the region. Japan and Korea are doing more in the region, but but even that cannot supplant China's preeminence as an economic factor. Uh, let's come to your second point, which is around some governments or some of the political challenges, um, North Korea being one. But we also have a little bit of authoritarianism, which is uh, which is uh, a concern. Philippines, Duterte, this, uh, these are these are challenges. Uh, even though in the West, a lot of people don't understand the level of popularity that somebody like the Philippines president might have, um, because he has changed and and speaking to people, he's a bit of a populist in his own right. Um, there are pros and cons on this. I'm not going to advocate one way or the other. But but what is your, are, do you have any creeping concerns that maybe democracy might be slipping away in some areas where it could work against its commercial benefit of the region? Well, Duterte himself comes from that populist style and populist philosophy where uh, he's the alpha male in the room and he has strong emotional 
connectivity with the broader population and his world is very Manichaean. There's good guys and bad guys and those who oppose him are the bad guys. So he's not a creature of the system or the Philippine Senate or of the Philippines cabinet of the process, right? He's a communicator and a message person. And he's, he's delivered, I think, very well on the economy. There's very nice economic growth. But you're right, he's raised a number of questions, both with these extrajudicial killings, the uh, anti-drug campaign, and some of his seemingly open-ended disputes with the media, where where some of his responses to what we would say are legitimate questions or challenges or essays have turned into you know quite combative relationships where he's threatening and carrying out legal actions against uh, uh, journalists and so forth. So, uh, so I think it does raise questions about it. The the saving grace, if I may say this, of all of these questions is his term comes to an end in 2022 and he's prohibited from running for another term. Mm -hmm. So that puts him in a different category than, say, the, the Burmese generals or the political dynamic in China or North Korea, which are more or less permanent fixtures uh, and, and you have to have a longer term approach. So to what degree are you concerned that some of the methods of Duterte and others, uh, authoritarian leaders in the region, might influence or embolden um, other leaders in other markets uh, to perhaps, uh, you know, uh, test it themselves? Yeah, I think that is uh, a concern. And there's, there's two elements of that, is that you have a reasonably effective, reasonably successful populist to Duterte that other people can look at and wonder if they should try to emulate. But, by the, but the other side of the, that same coin is, who are the heroes of democracy in Asia nowadays? Who are the statesmen and leaders that come from that democratic pedigree, who are managing well, who are clean and not corrupt, who can be viewed as role models that political figures around the region say, we need to get our country on that kind of a footing? That I'm not sure if there's anybody who completely fills that stature right now. So it's a bit of an empty moment, if you will. By the way, I would say, unfortunately, that same phenomenon holds true in the West as well, in Europe and North America as well, that I'm not sure there's any international statesman who's popular beyond their own country. Even people are generally viewed as having done a credible job, like Angela Merkel, is not necessarily viewed as a model for other countries. There's a global sort of populist move in the United States, in the UK, in Turkey, in Poland, uh, in the Philippines. Um, I still think democracy gives you the best outcomes, and I think democracy also gives you the best stability, because even if people aren't politically active, they at least want the right to be politically active, and they at least want to be able to say that these folks in government work for me, and I can fire them if I want, so it's your last resort. So I think we see a lot of stability, for example, in Southeast Asia, because there are a fair amount of democratic structures, and at some form or fashion, the government does have to be responsive to the people. So the more successful societies at least have some kind of accountability mechanism, which we call democracy. I'm going to throw this big question up in the air and see. It just came to mind, but you know, it speaks to their third point, which is, do you think there's a direct correlation between um, how democratic a society is and how tolerant it is? When we speak about uh, religious intolerance or, or you know, a gender intolerance or things of this sort, is there any correlation between the fact that you see so many uprisings or, or rumblings around the region now? Well, you know what? I think we have a skewed view of this in the West because of of the European experience, because Europe had the common experiences of the Enlightenment and common experiences such as the Second World War and then reconstruction from the World War and then European institutions on top of that. So you had very successful societies that had to be rebuilt economically, 
but we're all committed to being tolerant and democratic. But, but that isn't necessarily other countries' experience. Other countries have their own journey. And I think one element of economic growth is that it can, it can bring some economic instability or it can shift economic uh, leadership to different groups and it can bring issues of resentment and, and competition and envy and so forth. So it's got to be managed and there's got to be communications mechanisms and participation mechanisms to build that stability. I don't think it is naturally a part of a successful society the way it was in modern Europe. Mm. Do you recall, uh, and I had him on as a guest, uh, I guess uh, about a year ago, Bill Broadfoot, who was political economic oh, sure. risk. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. So he wrote a book uh, years ago where it was very controversial when he was still in Hong Kong, saying that without, uh, everyone was arguing without political freedoms and democracy, uh, free enterprise could not, uh, you know, rise to its natural level and, and expected levels. And he argued against that and saying, you know, there are just different set of priorities and criteria in many markets in Asia Pacific where economic freedoms actually can precede political freedoms, and he proved to be right. Mm. He's just recently come out with another book about a year ago where he actually says now it's arrived at a certain level in Asia, in China and elsewhere, where without political freedoms, he doesn't expect organizations or countries and markets to be able to move to the next level. What's your thought? Yeah, I, yeah, I do see that. I wonder about that in China. I mean, the question I would ask regarding China is, at some point, does China have to move from the 1950s to the 1960s? They're, they're enjoying very strong economic growth now. There's no question that reinforces uh, social stability as well, that people can participate in the economy the first time in their lives. People are enjoying a better life for the first time in their lives. Uh, so, so I think that does contribute to social stability and political satisfaction. But at some point after a protracted period of, of economic success, do people have other yearnings? And, and some of that is the right of expression or right of political participation or the right to criticize. And can the government do a reasonable job in meeting those responses? We're not there yet. We might not get there for 10 or 20 years, but I think at some point China will be faced from having to go from the 1950s to the 1960s. I want to return in the last just few minutes that we have together here, Frank, uh, and and talk about a e-commerce, your wheelhouse. Um, and, and I do, you know, on this show and on this program, in many cases, we identify areas where the region or countries in the region have leapfrogged the West mm. by virtue of application of technologies or new ways of innovating or uh, applications on, in the political system, whatever the case may be. When it comes to e-commerce and when it comes to the enthusiasm and support, whether it's digital payments or, or whether it's actually just access to different types of uh, products and services and platforms. What are your expectations for Asia vis-a-vis the West when it comes to application or use of e-commerce? Yeah, I think China leads the world in e-commerce. And you're right, it's not just a simplified or an easier, faster shopping mechanism. It's sort of a way of life. The amount of time that people spend on their smartphones in China, the gamification of the industry. People go on every day to win points and lucky numbers and play games. The social dimension of the industry where people are very sensitive or curious about what their friends are purchasing or what movie stars are purchasing. Uh, so China is, is more mature in all of these areas than the United States. Uh, and I would not be surprised if we see the United States uh, sort of borrow or adapt some of these Chinese innovations. One, for example, was same-day delivery. That was pioneered in China, and then Amazon said this seems to work. And boy, once you have same-day delivery, what's the point of going to a shop at all? You and I can be having lunch like today, and I'll say, you know, it's my wife's birthday. Tell me 
tell me what you got your wife for her birthday, and I'm going to order it right now at lunch on the smartphone, and I'm going to get that. Or better than that, I can go on a search engine. I can go on you know, Google here in Singapore or Baidu in China, and I can ask Alibaba, I can ask you all five most popular gift items for wife's birthday. Yeah. And they'll come back and say, well, what's your price range and so forth? This, And I'll say this, and they'll say, do you need same day? They said, yeah, I need same day delivery. Yeah. Right? And if I'm really smart, I'll say, look, I'm not quite sure which of these work. I'm going to order three or four of these gifts. I'll sound my wife out in conversation and see if her pupils dilate a bit when I talk about it. And I can send the other ones back and get a refund. And I'll say, I got you what you wanted, honey, if I'm really good at it. Love management. Love management, yeah. absolutely. But listen, now, you do not want to get your wife what I got mine for her birthday, for sure. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to leave it. You can't leave, you can't leave us with that, Steve. You're going to have to, give us, you're going to, have to, you're going to put it on the table, my yeah. friend. What did, what did you do? Another time in another podcast. Another but, time in another podcast. Yeah. Okay, but, all right. But to what degree is China's influence and its, its an embracing of e-commerce influencing the rest of behaviors in the other parts of Southeast Asia, or uh, are other markets in the region actually have their own cultural uh, approach to the way that they um, embrace or use e-commerce? Well, e-commerce intrinsic value is going to different market to market. One of the attributes of China that allowed e-commerce to be so powerful was that the traditional sector, the bricks and mortar sector, just didn't exist the way it built out in a lot of other markets. It was quite backwards. It was state-owned. People, there weren't shopping malls. There weren't big box stores. There weren't national chains. People didn't have car ownership to go to the mall. So there just weren't the attributes that we see in other developing or developed countries. So e-commerce really filled a void there. And, and we're not likely to see that in Thailand or Indonesia the same way. But you'll see e-commerce in Thailand and Indonesia because the, the, the geography, the topography of these countries is, is massive. The traditional system can't reach delivery to every corner of Indonesia, so you do need an express delivery service. And people have very particular consumer tastes. So if there's a special kind of ginseng you like and you're in rural Indonesia, you're not going to find that in the shop, and you better order it online. So it fills that specialty need in these markets. Frank, you are a bard and a seer, and we just so enjoy the time with you. Thank you so much. Steve, it's a lot of fun. Thank you. I'll see you in two and a half years from now. (laughs) Maybe two and a half weeks if things really heat up. Okay, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you, Frank. That was my conversation with Frank Levin, founder and chairman of Export Now, an e-commerce and distribution platform servicing American brands in China. Listening back on the conversation, I was reminded that 2020 was shaping up to be a pretty strong year for Asia. For the most part, economic fundamentals were strong. The political landscape remained relatively unsullied. China, despite its geopolitical challenges, was holding its own, gaining ground and demonstrating diplomacy. Japan, meanwhile, was upbeat in its preparation for the Summer Olympics. Even North Korea's tensions appeared contained, if only for a while. In hindsight, COVID-19 now looks like a sharp slap across the face of Asian growth. Repercussions, no doubt, will be far-reaching. How quickly economies rebound in this part of the world will likely be determined in three distinct ways. First, the strength of government, authoritarian or not, to reinvigorate their economies and reassure their people. Second, the rapid application of technologies to drive commerce, reduce costs, and accelerate production. And third, the institutionalization of contingency plans that bolster healthcare systems and ensure rapid response for when the next virus comes a calling. And most surely, it will.
Asia, eclectic mix of nations that it is, will demonstrate the full range of successes and failures on this front. But I predict that overall, the Asian propensity to prioritize the interests of society over those of the individual will prove a key factor in its bid to rebound from the current crisis. Corporations in this part of the world have a big part to play. On the whole, they appear to be acting responsibly. The employer-employee contract remains strong. And in an environment where relationships and loyalty take precedence, again, Asia may have a leg up on the rest of the world. In the balance, the region will no doubt refind its footing. But for now, less will be said about economic growth and more on human health and safety. And so it should be. That brings us to the end of this episode of Inside Asia. I hope you've enjoyed it. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover? Let us know. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or subscribe and download any or all of our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.